Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, coming in solo for you guys today. I've got an interesting show. We're going to start it off with an update on the Theranos case. We have the sentencing already for Elizabeth, who got 11 years, but now the update is that former partner of Elizabeth, Ramash Sunny Balwani, gets nearly 13 years in the Theranos case. Michael Ledke wrote this article, San Jose, California, the former Theranos executive, Ramash Sunny Balwani, was sentenced this last week to nearly 13 years in prison for his role in the company's blood testing hoax. This sentence was slow. Slightly longer than that given to the CEO, who was his lover and accomplice in one of Silicon Valley's biggest scandals. Balwani was convicted in July of fraud and conspiracy connected to the company's bogus medical technology that duped investors and endangered patients. His sentencing came less than three weeks after Elizabeth Holmes, the company's founder and CEO, received more than 11 years in prison for her part in the scheme, which has been dissected in a book, HBO documentary, and award-winning TV series. Balwani's sentence was less than the 15 years sought by federal prosecutors who depicted him as a ruthless, power-hungry figure, but it is substantially longer than the four to ten months sought by his lawyers. The scandal revolved around the company's false claims to have developed a device that could scan for hundreds of diseases and other potential problems with just a few drops of blood taken with a finger prick. After years of promoting the technology, Holmes and Balwani were warned that the blood tests were inaccurate, but they continued to raise money from investors, including from billionaires like software magnate Larry Ellison and media magnate Rupert Murdoch, and deployed the technology in some Walgreens stores. The U.S. District Judge Edward Davila said the financial statements drawn up by Balwani weren't just projections, they were outright lies and a true flight from honest business practices. The case threw a bright light on Silicon Valley's dark side and exposed how its culture of hype and boundless ambition could veer into lies. Both Holmes, 38, and Balwani, 57, could have gotten up to 20 years in prison. Balwani spent six years as Theranos' chief operating officer while remaining romantically involved with Holmes until a bitter split in 2016. Former federal prosecutor Amanda Kramer said the harsher sentence seemed appropriate given that the jury in Balwani's trial convicted him on every count, while jurors in Holmes' separate case acquitted her on some charges and deadlocked on others. It's not surprising that he got a more severe sentence because his misconduct was even more severe, Kramer said. While on the witness stand in her trial, Holmes accused Balwani of manipulating her through years of emotional and sexual abuse. Balwani's attorneys denied these allegations. Federal prosecutors also want the judge to order Balwani to pay about $804 million in restitution to defrauded investors, the same amount sought for Holmes. Davila deferred a decision on restitution to a later hearing, just as he did during Holmes' November 18th sentencing when she received 11 and one quarter years in prison. In court documents, Balwani's lawyers painted him as a hardworking immigrant who moved from India to the U.S. during the 1980s to become the first member of his family to attend college. He graduated from the University of Texas in 1990 with a degree in information systems and then later moved to Silicon Valley where he first worked as a computer programmer for Microsoft before founding an online startup that he sold for millions of dollars during the dot-com boom of the 90s. 
While Wani and Holmes met around the same time, she dropped out of Stanford University to start Theranos in 2003. He became enthralled with her and her quest to revolutionize healthcare. Balwani's lawyer said he eventually invested about $5 million in a stake in Theranos that eventually became worth about $500 million on paper, a fraction of Holmes' one-time fortune of $4.5 billion. That wealth evaporated after Theranos began to unravel in 2015 amid revelations that his blood-testing technology never worked as Holmes had boasted in glowing magazine articles that likened her to Silicon Valley visionaries like Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. Before Theranos' downfall, Holmes teamed up with Balwani to raise nearly $1 billion from deep-pocketed investors. Mr. Balwani is not the same as Elizabeth Holmes, his lawyers wrote in a memo to the judge. He actually invested millions of dollars of his own money. He never sought fame or recognition, and he has a long history of quietly giving to those less fortunate. Balwani's lawyers also asserted that Holmes was dramatically more culpable for the Theranos fraud. Echoing similar claims by Holmes' lawyers before her sentencing, Balwani's attorneys also argued that he had been adequately punished by the intense media coverage of Theranos. Balwani has lost his career, his reputation, and his ability to meaningfully work again, his lawyers wrote. Federal prosecutors cast Balwani as a ruthless, power-hungry accomplice in crimes that ripped off investors and imperiled people who received flawed results. The blood tests were to be available in a partnership with Walgreens that Balwani helped engineer. Balwani presented a fake story about Theranos technology and financial stability day after day and meeting after meeting, the prosecutors wrote in their memo to the judge. Balwani maintained this facade of accomplishments after making the calculated decision that honesty would destroy Theranos. Well, obviously that decision will be appealed and we will keep you all posted. So the main topic for the day that we are going to discuss today is Richard Cottingham. Richard Cottingham has actually been in the news quite a bit lately because evidently he has just confessed to some additional murders other than the ones that he was initially convicted for. But Richard Francis Cottingham was born November 25th, 1946 in Mott Haven, Bronx, New York City. He was the first of four with three sisters. In 1948, when he was just two years old, his family moved to Dumont, New Jersey, and then in 1956, again to Rivervale, New Jersey. It was about this time when he was around 10 years old where he began to be fascinated with bondage pornography. In 1964, he graduated from high school in Hillsdale, New Jersey, and worked for Metropolitan Life, where his father was a vice president. He first started in the mailroom and worked his way up to become a mainframe computer operator after taking various computer courses. And then in 1966, he also became a computer operator for Blue Cross Blue Shield until he was arrested in 1980. Interestingly enough, he worked in an office with fugitive serial killer Rodney Alcala, who was the dating game killer. Evidently, Rodney lived in New York City in 1969 under the alias John Berger, but neither man was said to be aware of the other, nor is there any evidence that either one was familiar with each other prior to the other's arrest. May 3rd, 1970, Cottingham gets married. He and his wife have three children, two boys and a girl. By April 1978, his wife filed for divorce, saying that she'd been abandoned and alleging mental cruelty. Supposedly, he refused to have sex with his wife after the birth of their third child, staying out all hours of the day and leaving her with insufficient household funds. 
This petition was actually withdrawn May of 1980 until he was convicted in his first trial in New Jersey, at which point the petition was refiled and the divorce proceedings were completed. Now, initially Cottingham was arrested on lesser charges throughout his killing spree, but the police were not aware of his murders at this time, nor were they aware that there was an active serial killer in the New York, New Jersey area. For instance, October 3rd, 1969, Cottingham was charged and convicted with drunk driving in New York City. He was sentenced to a $50 fine for that. Then by August 21st, 1972, he was charged and convicted with shoplifting and sentenced to pay a $50 fine on that or spend 10 days in jail. He paid the fine. On October 4th, 1973, he was arrested in New York City for robbery, oral sodomy, and sex abuse on the complaint of a sex worker and her pimp. However, because neither showed up at court proceedings, the case was eventually dismissed. And then finally, March 12, 1974, he was arrested in New York City for robbery and unlawful imprisonment. Again, this was a complaint of a sex worker. And because she did not appear for further proceedings, this case was dismissed as well. Evidently, Cottingham committed his first murder when he was about 20 years old. October 28, 1967, he strangled a woman by the name of Nancy Vogel. She was a 29-year-old married mother of two in Little Ferry, New Jersey. She was found nude with her hands bound in front of her on October 31st under a blanket behind the passenger seat of her car in New Jersey. She was last seen three days before that when she left home saying that she was going to play bingo with friends at a local church. The murder actually remained unsolved until Cottingham confessed and pleaded guilty to it in August 2010. The second victim of this man was February 15, 1968. This woman failed to return home from a trip to buy shoes at a mall nearby. 23-year-old Diane Kusick had been raped, beaten, and strangled to death and was found in the backseat of her car near the mall. Cottingham was not charged with this murder until June 2022. He was implicated at that point by DNA, not by his own confession. Then, starting in 2014, Cottingham confidentially admitted to police about the murders of three teenage females in 1968 and 69. Jacqueline Harp, age 13, evidently was killed July 17, 1968. She was randomly ambushed by Cottingham when she was walking home from school. He strangled her with a leather strap of her bag in New Jersey. Then there was Irene Blaise, who was about 18 years old. She disappeared April 7, 1969 in New Jersey and was found face down in four feet of water in the river. She had been strangled with a wire, a cord, or perhaps the chain of the crucifix she had been wearing. And then there was Denise Falaska, age 15, who had been abducted July 14, 1969 in New Jersey while walking to a friend's house. She was found the next morning in New Jersey on the side of a road next to a cemetery. Evidently, she had also been strangled with a cord or the chain of her crucifix. Police closed the three murder cases, but for several years kept the file from the public, except for the victim's family members. In August 2022, 
Cottingham also confessed to the murder of 26-year-old Lorraine McGraw. This woman was beaten and killed March 1, 1970 in New York. Then, December 2022, Cottingham was convicted of a 1968 murder and admitted to four other killings from 72 to 73 in Long Island, New York. Mary Hines, Laverne Moy, Sheila Hyman, and Marie Amarita Rosado Nieves. In April 2021, Cottingham confessed to the unsolved cases from August 9th through 11th, 1974. These women had been abducted, raped, and drowned. This was Lorraine Marie Kelly, 16, and Marianne Pryor, 17, of New Jersey. These are some of New Jersey's most notorious cold cases, and the confessions were extracted by the police weeks before retirement of critical members of the police force. Evidently, key members of the police force had been meeting with Cottingham in prison since 2017, counseling him to make additional confessions. One particular gentleman, Anne Zalodi, had spent 15 years interviewing Cottingham, working towards confessions. This raised the total number of victims to 11 at that time. But evidently, Cottingham claimed to have committed between 85 and 100 murders. He was convicted of five from 1977 to 1980 alone in a series of three trials, which occurred between 1981 and 1984 in New Jersey and New York. On December 15, 1977, the body of X-ray technician Marilyn Ann Carr age 26, was found brutally beaten and strangled in the parking lot of Equality Inn Motel in New Jersey. Evidently, police did not link this murder to Cottingham until after he had been arrested, but this woman also had marks around her wrists and ankles, which showed that she had possibly been subdued with handcuffs, and there were traces of adhesive tape on her mouth. There were also various small cuts and bite marks on her body, she had been abducted from Little Fairy Apartment Complex, and Cottingham had previously lived there with his wife. He had also left an unconscious victim who ended up surviving, so that further connected him to that scene. On December 2nd, 1979, firemen responding to an alarm at a travel-in motel near Times Square found the bodies of 22-year-old sex worker Dide Gudazari and another unidentified woman, both of these bodies had their heads and hands removed and had been doused with lighter fluid and set aflame. The missing body parts of these two women have never been found. Evidently, as Cottingham fled the scene of the torso murders, he briefly encountered 23-year-old Peter Vorosky, who was attempting to check into the travel inn while in New York on a film production assignment. This brief encounter between the two was used by Voronsky to write serial killer histories and paved his way for prison meetings with Cottingham about 40 years later. In a 2009 interview, he claimed to admit to the murders of these women and that he had severed the heads and hands of the victims to prevent identification. In May 1980, a motel housekeeper found the body of 19-year-old Valerie Ann Street in another quality inn, her hands were tightly handcuffed as well behind her back, and fingerprints were later found matching those of Cottingham. This young woman, Valerie Street, had been bruised and beaten around her head and body and bitten on the breast. There were also traces of adhesive tape on her lips. There were numerous shallow cuts found on her breasts, 
also showing that she had possibly been tortured. She had died of asphyxiation. This murder was later linked to the earlier murder of Marianne Carr, who was left in the same motel's parking lot. Then there was Jean Rayner, who was strangled and her throat was cut in New York's historic Seville Hotel. This was May 15, 1980. Evidently, he severed the victim's breast and posed them on the headboard of the bed, set fire to the mattress under the body, and then fled, which was very similar to the travel-in torso killings. On May 22, 1980, Cottingham picked up Leslie Ann O'Dell, who was an 18-year-old at the time. She was thought to be a sex worker and had been picked up on the corner of Manhattan's Lexington Avenue and 25th Street. She agreed to have sex with Cottingham for about $44. Around sunrise, they checked into Hasbrook Heights Quality Inn, where he had 18 days earlier left Valerie Street handcuffed and found by a housekeeper. He offered to give this young woman a massage and she rolled onto her stomach. When she did so, he straddled her, drew a knife, and put it to her throat as he snapped a pair of handcuffs on her wrists. At that point, he began torturing her, nearly biting off one of her nipples. She later testified that he said to her, you have to take it, the other girls did, you have to take it too. You're a whore and you have to be punished. Evidently, this young woman's muffled cries of pain became so loud that the staff heard her and rushed to the room, demanding that Cottingham open the door. He was then apprehended in the hallway by police, arrested, and handcuffed. When they did this, they found handcuffs, a leather gag, two slave collars, a switchblade knife, replica pistols, and a stockpile of prescription pills. At this time... His indictment included kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, aggravated sexual assault while armed, rape, aggravated sexual assault while armed, sodomy, aggravated sexual assault while armed, fellatio, possession of a weapon, possession of controlled dangerous substances, etc. April 1978, after his wife initiated the divorce proceedings, he had kept a locked room in the basement of their house. Following his arrest, police went into this locked room and found personal effects that they traced back to the victims. So in the early 1980s, Cottingham was convicted of a total of five murders, two in New Jersey, which had murder trials in 81 and 82, and a single trial in New York City in 1984 for three murders combined. He pleaded innocent and for decades insisted that he'd been framed until 2009, when he admitted to the murders that he was actually accused of. In 2010, he pleaded guilty to the 1967 murder of Nancy Vogel. In 2021, he pleaded guilty to the 1974 kidnapping, raping, and drowning of Lorraine Marie Kelly and Marianne Pryor, and confessed to three murders of schoolgirls between 1968 and 69. He got immunity from prosecution in those cases. In 2022, Cottingham confessed to the 1970 murder of Lorraine McGraw. There was an additional confession to a 1974 murder, which was discounted by the police in Rockland County. And then in 2022, he was arraigned from his hospital bed for the 1968 murder of Diane Cusick. The link was found through DNA evidence, and authorities believe it to be the oldest criminal case to be prosecuted by DNA evidence. He pleaded guilty in December of this year 
and made a court appearance, also admitting to killing four other women in Long Island, New York. That was Mary Beth Hines, Laverne Moy, Sheila Hyman, and Marie Emerito Rosalto Nieves. And then the most recent article that came out just the last couple days ago, Torso Killer pleads guilty to murdering five women in the 60s and 70s, and Teddy Grant wrote this article. A convicted serial killer pleaded guilty Monday to murdering a dance teacher in 1968 outside a Long Island, New York mall and had admitted to killing four other women in the early 1970s. DNA testing led to Richard Cottingham's March indictment in the killing of Diane Cusick, a 23-year-old mother who went to buy dance shoes at the Greenacres Mall in Valley Stream, New York. Cottingham, now 76, is currently an inmate in Bridgeton, New Jersey and is known as the Torso Killer because of the way he dismembered some of his victims. The Southwoods State Prison inmate pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life by a judge, the Nassau County District Attorney's Office said in a news release. Cottingham also admitted to the deaths of four other women, Marie Beth Hines, as I mentioned earlier, Mary Beth Hines, Laverne Moy, Sheila Hyman, and Marie Esmerita Rosaldo Nieves, but won't be prosecuted for their deaths since he's already spending the rest of his life in prison because of prior murder convictions in New York and New Jersey, according to Nassau County prosecutors. Serial killer Richard Cottingham has caused irreparable harm to so many people and so many families, Donnelly said. Today, he took responsibility for the murder of five young women here in Nassau County between 1968 and 73. He overpowered, assaulted, and brutally murdered them to satisfy his craven desires. Thankfully, he will spend the rest of his life in prison where he belongs. Cusick's parents discovered her body in the backseat of her car in the Greenacres Mall parking lot after growing concerned about why she hadn't returned home after leaving earlier in the evening of February 15, 1968, to buy shoes. A medical examiner determined Cusick was strangled to death, officials said. The Nassau County Office of the Medical Examiner retested evidence related to the case in 2021. Earlier this year, DNA evidence matched Cunningham's profile, according to the district attorneys. Evidently, this man is in ill health, and he possibly won't live much longer, but it's very, very sad indeed that all of these women suffered, and hopefully they will lock down enough information to solve between 85 and 100 murders he's thought to have committed. We're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We do occasionally post pictures on Instagram. We're at BFD podcast. And all the articles that we have used today, we are posting in the show notes. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye.